0: What really drew me to Ethereum was the idea of this open development platform first. And then secondly, was when I kind of realized that every financial institution is just a giant smart contract.
1: I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralized This, presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Bear, I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and I want to start with an apology for our listeners who've grown used to our weekly cadence of episodes. Uh, as Enigma is kind of a small team, and we're rapidly approaching the release of our protocol, very exciting, uh, we're taking things down a notch momentarily, moving to releasing maybe an episode every two or three weeks, and focusing on quality over quantity in this case. So, for today's episode, I am speaking with Kyle Samani. Kyle is a managing partner at Multicoin Capital, a crypto asset fund whose stated mission is to accelerate the transition from the centralized institutions of the industrial age to the decentralized institutions of the internet age. Kyle's a serial entrepreneur in the tech world, having previously founded a company in the cutting-edge field of augmented reality before that was acquired, And he also frequently writes about his work at Multicoin and his personal perspectives on technology, including the crypto space. On this episode, Kyle talks about how smart contracts could supplant our financial system, the underrated importance of key management solutions, the weird relationship between crypto and leverage, and what he looks for when he's trying to answer the question, what comes next? Kyle's a really intelligent guy. He's looked at a ton of projects in the space. He cares deeply about a lot of the same stuff that we do, privacy, scalability, solving the really critical technical questions that are standing between us and widespread adoption of decentralized technologies. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without any further introduction, here is Kyle Samani. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Decentralize This. I am thrilled that we could make this happen.
0: Uh, Hey, Tor. I am super excited to be here. Um, Looking forward to diving into some really cool stuff.
1: So we start every episode the same way. I just want to know personally, professionally, who are you? Who is Kyle?
0: Um, Kyle is someone who doesn't have a whole lot of life these days. Um, I spend (laughs) a lot of my time working Uh, I read a tremendous amount. I uh, quite naively try to know everything about crypto Um, that sometimes works in my favor, sometimes works against me. But I I read a tremendous amount when I'm not um, either reading about crypto or talking to other people in crypto space. uh, I occasionally go snowboarding. Um, I work out. I go to spin class and I go wakeboarding in the summers because I live in Texas. Um, That's basically my life.
1: (laughs) I think it sounds awesome. Uh, I mean, you have to kind of like crypto to like that life, but I mean, you do and I do and all of our listeners do. So I, I the one part of that that I'm pretty jealous about is the Texas part because we've just come out of the Chicago winter, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to something resembling Texas weather at least in the next few months, but we haven't quite gotten there yet.
0: Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of Texas summers. It's a lot of fun. People say it gets too hot, um, and while you you definitely don't want to be outside, you know, Tuesday at two p.m. Saturday at 2 p.m. is time for boating and pools and all kinds of other fun things. So um, I'm a big fan of Texas summers.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, it's a pretty good sales pitch, uh, but we're we're not here to talk Texas, although we certainly could. It's it's mostly to talk about, uh, as we usually do, uh, mass adoption of decentralized technologies, which is actually something that you you've written a lot about. I, I specifically think that you come at this from a very particular. Uh, angle around mass adoption, because you've written about like, what does it look like for an individual network or protocol to achieve mass adoption? And you've looked at like the differences between platforms like Binance that have been tokenized versus, you know, uh, smart contract platforms. Uh, And and you've seen it all, right? So I want to start uh, digging into some of these examples of things you've written and projects you've looked at. But first and foremost, why do you care about this stuff at all? Why do you read all the time? About crypto, what? Why is it so meaningful to you?
0: Yeah, so I really got into crypto for, through Ethereum, and what really drew me to Ethereum was the idea of this open development platform. First, and then secondly, was when I kind of realized that every financial institution is just a giant smart contract. Um, and when I, that kind of clicked to me, I realized, you know, Mark Andreessen has a little saying: "Software is eating the world." And this is for me was early 2016 was the moment that I realized that nothing in the existing financial system software has not eaten that that world um, and that software is going to eat uh, finance um, and financial infrastructure. And so Ethereum is kind of what caused the light bulb for me to go off uh, of, of, you know, of uh, software eating money. Um, from there, as I started to get more into the history of you know, sort of getting into crypto. Sort of learning about bitcoin and ethereum and other things around at the time like monero and, and later zcash and Augur and those kinds of things the more i dug into crypto the more i realized that you know this is this is actually bigger than just software eating kind of the curtain incarnation of finance this is really about creating a global digital um a global digital state free money um, and about web3 and about unlocking you know consumer data such that consumers can own their own data um, it took me, you know, probably one year to get from actually probably a year and a half to get from, hey, this is a cool development platform, we can automate financial infrastructure to realizing how big the opportunity was for global state free money, and then all the way to web three and kind of the future of personal data ownership. Um, so I'll I'll totally admit, like I did not see um I, I think just the magnitude of what crypto is going to enable when I first got into crypto. It took me probably upwards of 18 months before all of the kind of major theses started to click.
1: It's interesting that you're coming at this from the Ethereum side, and you already saw it as as the future of finance, in a sense, because you saw how financial institutions could be represented in smart contract form. And I've talked to people on this podcast before who came into the space because of a passion for Bitcoin, and how they saw Bitcoin disrupting the world of finance. And I don't know if um, what what you think of Bitcoin specifically versus ethereum in terms of their relationship to disrupting or changing the financial space but I'm curious from the time that you you know started paying attention to the space like how, how is your feeling about like what ethereum actually is evolved because I feel like the narrative shifts a lot you know it was a smart contract platform then it was you know uh, an ICO platform now a Everybody says it's like a decentralized finance platform. Is it all of those things? How do you view it?
0: Uh, yeah, so I definitely agree that Ethereum's narrative or storyline has shifted quite a bit since inception. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Bitcoin has as well. Um, and it's just kind of natural as as companies grow up mm-hmm. um, that, that what they do and kind of their arc shifts, or in this case, kind of open protocols, what they're used for, um, kind of the perception shifts. So I think that's very natural and generally a good, healthy sign. Um, I, I think of the things you described Ethereum as, you know, a, a smart contract platform, uh, a ICO platform, and now kind of a decentralized finance platform. I think all of those are, are characteristics are correct. Um, and for you know describing Ethereum, I don't find any one of those to be um, like like too strong or or not or kind of going in the wrong direction. Um, I think Ethereum you know does all of those things today. I think it's limited in quite a few others but certainly given the current technical limitations ethereum has found at least a handful of of kind of use cases that make sense.
1: We're definitely going to get into some of those limitations cuz I believe you know last year and and probably this year as well you've been stating that scalability and privacy are are some of these big technical issues that remain to be solved not just for ethereum but just sort of for the space in general. Um but then i i have one question before that because the podcast is focused on mass adoption right we have these different definitions for what ethereum can be and can do so what does mass adoption look like for ethereum you know if is it a proliferation of icos conducted on the platform is it a is it a proliferation of users that are you know opening cdps or operating dexes like how will we know when ethereum's been mass-adopted? What metric would you use?
0: Um, yeah, so I think on a long enough timescale, all layer-one chains become directly competitive. I wrote about this uh, actually in actually my most recent blog post. I published it maybe a week ago uh, called On Value Capture at Layers 1 and 2. Um, and kind of walk through why I think all layer-one chains are fundamentally competitive with one another. And so mm-hmm. that's because all layer-one chains are competing to be what I call global state free money. Uh, and it just doesn't make sense to have ten or twenty or forty global state free monies. It makes sense to have, I mean, probably one, but like there's a real case that there's two, three or four of these things, and then not more than that. Um, and so, and that, that's, that that time scale is likely measured in, in decades and not in years. Um, so, but but in that kind of long run state of the world, uh, if Ethereum is successful, um, that would, in my view, imply that hundreds of millions, if not billions, of people are using the kind of core protocol to send payments, to basically conduct any form of financial transaction of any form um, across the world to pay for, you know, cash, paying for food, whatever, um, any form of financial infrastructure, lend loans, whatever, uh, but kind of all of the world's financial infrastructure are running on top of um, the global money protocol.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, that's a very exciting vision for me. And then I just can't help but notice when I go look at today's metrics that I'm looking at normally things that are in the hundreds or maybe the low thousands of of users or individuals. And many of the people that are using platforms built on Ethereum are the same people who are developing these platforms. It's still very niche. Do you have a vision about what the first uh, applications for Ethereum and I'm going to focus on like, you know, decentralized one here because there's plenty of like more centralized companies facing the space that I think have achieved broader adoption. But do you th- what do you think is going to be some of these first applications we'll be able to point to in terms of having broad adoption on the user side?
0: Yeah, that's, that's very unclear to me. We internally have kind of about 10 or 15 hypotheses on what um, that kind of first major consumer application could be. Um, I'd say, you know, commonly in the crypto space, people tend to think that's going to be gaming. Um, Gaming is one of those 10 or 15 that we track internally, but I'm actually pretty skeptical that it's going to be gaming. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunities for things around tickets and and ticketing in the real world. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity for back end infrastructure. So it wouldn't necessarily be a consumer application, but would be a back end infrastructure. Um, Things like live peer fall in that category very nicely. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunities for crypto in inner in kind of internet access and wireless technology. So we're working on a very large investment right now in that space that that's not quite disclosed, but that will be launching sooner than people think. Um, I'm trying to, think, uh, I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities around, uh, private pr- private browsing on the internet. So kind of what brave is doing, uh, that already you can argue as some mass market adoption. I mean, I think there's 5 million a active users. So mm. that, that's a, real, that's a real number now. Um, We've got a lot of opportunities in spaces um, uh, like prediction markets. I'm very excited about it. I expect by the end of this year, uh, we'll see quite, quite uh, real usage in prediction markets. So uh, there's these kind of little pockets of, of development happening. They all largely feel unrelated, um, and, and they are largely unrelated other than they share some common backbone on top of something like Ethereum. But I expect kind of over the next 12 to 24 months, Uh, As we have these little pockets of activity, um, you know, start to get going in a meaningful way, then they're going to start to kind of snowball together and we'll we'll create kind of the fertile environment for the next kind of, I'd say, um, wave of excitement in space. So
1: when it comes to adoption, you've just described like a bunch of really cool applications, all things that I've heard proposed. And it's exciting to think that they're finally going to be coming to fruition, getting people using them. How would you weigh the the t- these two sides of the challenge, right? How much of this is a technical issue, like we haven't solved some of the basic technical issues that would be needed to support a large user base, and how much of it is just we haven't identified the use cases that are going to hook large numbers of people, and we haven't figured out how to build network effects around those use cases?
0: Um, I, I think it's it's both. Um, we there are definitely a lot of technical limitations still. Pre- Um, preventing us from getting kind of mainstream usage. Um, I'd say the one that I think is probably the most pronounced that's the least discussed about is key management. we we fortunately just made an investment in that space. Um, I can't quite disclose the company yet, but they'll be coming out of stealth mode pretty soon. I got you. Um, But I think, I think key management is just a huge, huge, huge technical problem. Once we get past, you know, key management for consumers, I think that's going to unlock a lot more, a lot more opportunities. Um, but there's just, there's just a whole series of things that need to happen, you know, key, key management and then probably fiat onboarding are, are probably the two most painful ones mm. uh, in terms of, I'd say, just UX. And then on just kind of a raw technical basis, we have a long ways to go with just general scaling, latency, and privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, those, I mean, we can operate with those limitations today to some extent, uh, but those need to be addressed for, you know, 5, 10, 20 million the current user kind of a thing.
1: Right. So, yeah, I mean, the thing around fiat onboarding is interesting, just because that was the very first thing that was said in our very first episode. That's what Joey Krug said when he came on. uh, And I asked him about what he thought were some of the biggest barriers to adoption. So you're mentioning key management. Um, For listeners, I mean, I I don't expect you to disclose the company, but can you go into a little bit more depth about why this is such a challenge and, and like why particularly it's the one that you've chosen to highlight?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, today consumers are not by and large trained on, on how to manage their keys. The, the big problem with key management in, in general is that if you lose your keys, you're screwed. Once you encrypt something um, with symmetric key or in, in the case of uh, public key cryptography, once you lose your private key, you simply cannot access your kind of underlying data or underlying money. Uh, consumers in really no facet of life are trained to the idea that if you forget something or lose it, it is permanently gone forever and it could be you know, millions of dollars. Um, The kind of modern financial system is based on the idea that you can walk into a bank with their driver's license and write like a worst case scenario, figure out how to get your money out. There might be a whole series of weird backstop events if you lost your ID and you're in a foreign country and whatever. But like there's there's X number of kind of backstops, right? That if you lose, um, your identity, or or your rather your driver's license, or whatever that you can still access your money, and that you fundamentally own it. The system is not just like a binary. Oh, well, ID's gone, money's gone, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, given the nature of cryptography, uh, that is unfortunately one of the side effects is that you, you can't rely on human institutions to solve cryptographic um, problems, and so you need to have a you know a set of uh, solutions such that if if consumers are going to be self sovereign. If they are going to custody their own, their own keys, it needs to be so, 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 so simple um, that they can never lose their keys, basically, under any circumstance. Um, and it turns out it's actually extremely difficult to design any technical system that you know, basically makes it impossible for consumers to lose their keys, uh, while at the same time ensuring that outsiders cannot access their keys and making sure that this works across all of their devices seamlessly, you know, uh, phones and desktops and tablets and stuff. Um, so that's really the, the, like problem of key management in a nutshell. Um, you, you know, the first incarnations of this we saw were just things like writing down your private key for Bitcoin. And then eventually we got to like the 24 words or 12 word seed phrases. Then we started getting into things like MetaMask, which kind of enabled this to work in your browser. Mm-hmm. Now we have some, you know, now if you look at mobile applications. We have, um, I mean, every, right. Every EOS or Ethereum based application on, on your phone, basically you have to re-log into your wallets. Um and every mobile app saves your key basically locally, creates all kinds of trust problems there. Um, it, you know, porting that key between mobile and desktop is really hard. The number of just kind of nesting compounded issues here to to nail key management is is actually quite difficult. Um, and I'd argue it's is one of the most pragmatic things that have prevented um, consumers from adopting crypto in a meaningful way.
1: I think my favorite proposal I've heard recently is emoji-based key management and seed phrases, and I. Maybe I just like emojis too much and I I know this isn't a complete solution and not worthy of venture funding. I'm just very amused by the idea. Uh, I find them to be very memorable.
0: Uh, I agree.
1: So um, that was an amazing summary of the issue. And and, uh, it reminded me that this is all linked to another key digital uh, space issue, which is identity. And how we create digital identities, manage digital identities, how do we handle the question of digital ownership, what do you think uh, Ethereum can be good for? Or, uh, I don't want to limit you. Other smart contract platforms in terms of allowing ourselves to establish digital identities that, you know, like I think we're very limited today in terms of, you know, establishing digital identities and and most of our identities are linked to our relationships with governments and citizenship. What do you think are like some of the most exciting ideas you've seen around digital identity and ownership?
0: Um I'd say the biggest one is being able to like segregate your identities if you choose across services or more interesting way we can already do that today. You can have your your name on Twitter can be Kyle Bob one two three and your Twitter and your name on Reddit can be John Smith four five six and and no one can really put those two together or it's, it's very difficult to put those two together. So segregating identities across applications today is quite easy merging identities across applications today is quite difficult um, because all of the applications are kind of designed in silos. So I think there's a very interesting opportunity to kind of you know have a single global identity, basically one private public key pair um, that you can manage across different services. I think that's extremely interesting. And I think the opportunities that will kind of be unlocked from that um, will, will be pretty material over time. I wrote a blog post touching on these ideas about a year ago. I think it's called uh, Opportunities for Blockchain-Based Social Applications kind of touching on this, I think the way I phrase it is to think about um, basically where every application can theoretically read and write from the same database. um, And kind of the opportunities for developer co-opetition in that environment, I think is just extraordinarily interesting. Um, I think kind of the best example I can think of is like the modding community. So I I think whereas modding basically lets, you know, games um, add kind of new objects to them, uh, I think this would just basically put modding on steroids. Where you could have snap, you know, things like Snapchat and Facebook and, and Twitter and all these kinds of applications could, different developers could merge different concepts and features from them. Um, it might end up producing some messy results, but I think in the long run, it'll actually produce far far better user experiences.
1: I look forward to this exciting future of like social media chimeras pieced together from like the the bits and pieces. There, there's definitely pieces that I like and don't like about pretty much every platform that I've ever interacted with. So I'd be interested to see how that evolves. Uh,
0: absolutely. So I think that's that's a super cool area. The other kind of major area you touched on was um, government identity. And, and this one, my my intuition, which I think is wrong, um, is that this is just a much more limited space um, in the sense that, right, if you're going to open a bank account, get insurance, get your cell phone, I mean, if any service that you buy today as a consumer that's regulated, um, you know, basically like this, the, the cert, the, that industry is regulated by the government and the government mandates some sort of government issued ID, like a driver's license or a passport in order to, um, you know, buy that service. Um, there's obviously like a, a pretty obvious way to, like the obvious thing to do is to automate that and basically do something like what civic is doing, right. Where you basically get your driver's license, get it scanned, get that, get an attestation from some sort of certified provider that your private key is tied to some driver's license. And then if you need to prove your, um, age or whatever, prove your identity to, um, someone, let's say it's a, it's a vending machine that sells beer, mm-hmm. right? And like find a message. And send I the experienced
1: message. that.
0: Right. Um, and so civic is working on this specifically for, I think alcohol, right? I think that's kind of the primary uh, focus area at the moment. Um, and, and like that use case is pretty obvious, but it's also very obvious how that extends to buy any form of regulated product, whether it's insurance or cigarettes or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, voting, like obviously, is kind of the next step from there. There's some interesting implications in terms of like privacy for for voting, but it's not very hard to see how you know once you basically can get a, an attestation of a, of a government issued identity on blockchain, you can theoretically do any government spot you know government regulated activity, um, right? Through through that system is just a kind of a pretty simple step forward from there. Uh, it's not clear to me what that unlocks that like is so, so much better than the status quo. I do think there is a lot of opportunity there. I admittedly don't spend enough time thinking about these kinds of regulated services to, mm. to have strong views on how this can morph and evolve and compound in more compelling ways.
1: Yeah, I guess my perspective on that would be just from the trust side, you know, not not having so many, you know, purely centralized entities that that are in control of how you can attest to an identity, how you can establish an identity, just just in terms of like I I think that opens up a bunch of risks that that don't necessarily need to exist. What it unlocks is another question, but I but I definitely see the the risks of of the status quo. Well, uh, I have plenty i could say on on the privacy side you know and private voting something that we've thought and written a lot about with enigma but we we of course stop short of recommending that anybody use these nascent technologies for like actual election level voting um i don't know if you have a thought on that but it's come up on the podcast before do you do you see any application of blockchain technology in that space in the election space and uh digital voting
0: um, you know, it, it's a space, it's a use case that obviously makes sense. Like, um, when you put on this, your kind of crypto hat, mm-hmm. uh, there are so many logistical barriers between here and there that I, I, I don't know, you know, how you make this happen. Um, if you're curious about this, actually the person who I would recommend following and diving into is a guy named Bradley Tusk. Um, Bradley Tusk runs Tusk Ventures, mm-hmm. uh, was the guy who, uh, uh Travis Cowan hired at Uber to basically lead like their politics, political. Politicking strategy as they engaged with every city um, around the world. And he kind of devised Uber's campaign. Um, so he's he, like, his background is in like managing political campaigns and stuff, and now runs a venture fund. And, and the kind of the startups they primarily invest in are those that have legal problems. Um, and, anyways, what, what uh, Tusk Ventures is doing, or what Bradley's doing, is he's basically funding um, kind of mobile voting systems um, to encourage government to enable people to vote from their iPhones to their Android phones. Um, I do think the stuff they're working on is blockchain based. I'm not familiar with with all the details, but Bradley actually, he wrote a a book a few months ago called the fixer. And in that book, he talks a little bit about kind of what he's working on. Um, If you have any particular interest in that space, you should probably reach out to him. I'm sure he would love help in whatever way he can get it.
1: Yeah. I've run into... Bradley, it's us because of um, the Chicago connection. He was he was here in town, and uh, I think he's a U Chicago guy. So uh, I would love to follow up on that. We also had Bruce Schneier on the podcast, who terrified me, and said that basically fewer and fewer things should be based. Forget blockchain. Just we should stop connecting things to each other. We should stop doing so many things. Uh, he he had just published a book about like the risks of hyper connecting the world and how it's actually creating these massive uh, attack vectors. Do you, do you have any sort of sense of, like, what you would think are, are some of the risks of any of the things that we've just talked about? Like, it's really cool to think about, like, what it's going to mean to have all these things achieve mass adoption. But let's, let's put our 2017 hats back on for a second and look at how that hype cycle shook out and what everybody thought blockchain could do, which was everything. What do you think are, you know... Some of the risks of thinking that these technologies are already in a place where they can solve all these problems, but there's still quite a bit of work to be done in in terms of getting them production ready.
0: Yeah, so I mean, right with any technology, once it becomes big enough and mo- widely widely adopted, it's going to be used in ways that people didn't didn't forecast. Um, social media being like, uh, the most obvious high profile example of the last few years, mm-hmm. uh, blockchains are certainly no different. I mean, fundamentally, if you have uncensorable, you know, money, then like, who are like, there are going to be people who uh, are are breaking the law and are violent criminals who are going to love the fact that it's uncensorable money, and they're going to abuse that um, for their own gain or for their own purposes. Uh, and unfortunately, that is going to come at the you know, cost to some honest honest actors um, out there. It's just unfortunate kind of reality of of how the world works. Um, I I can't make a claim on on what are all the ways it's going to be twisted and used against you other than the kind of the obvious ones that are already written about which things like the risk of surveillance state and things like terrorist financing through blockchains which again these things will happen that's that's not a question Um, you know will there be um, yeah like these things are going to happen are are those costs going to uh, outweigh the benefits I suspect the answer is no because the benefits are going to add you know, massive um, improvements to kind of society's functioning as a whole, and you know, by enabling bad actors to to act marginally more badly, I just don't think that you know, one basis point of the population, even if they are more capable of of conducting harm, can that possibly outweigh the benefit of ninety nine point nine nine percent of the population operating more efficiently and effectively? Um, so it's just unfortunate reality but it is what it
1: is and you could have said the same about you know the internet more generally right like and especially if we're talking about these things reaching the same sort of scale of touching you know hundreds of millions or billions of people on the planet like i don't think any of us are advocating for the abolition of the internet uh much as it might feel like that would be a great idea some days as you said uh, especially on social media but by and large i think it's a public good uh, one suggestion that I'll make, and maybe you have a response to this, is I, I come from a trading background. You know, before getting into this space, I was a derivatives trader, and I, I cared very deeply about markets and liquidity and, and all of these things. And one hesitation that I have when I look at the space and what Ethereum is evolving into in terms of the decentralized finance narrative is I see us introducing a lot of ways to uh, get leverage into the system and I've you know traded in in markets that were very much affected by the presence and proliferation of leverage and I've traded the same markets when they've collapsed. And I'm wondering how you how you view this balance between like building these very exciting new kinds of products you know everything from stable coins to lending platforms to derivatives markets for crypto assets. You know, but but these things have the potential, of course, to also like hyperinflate and then collapse, which I don't think is the path that we're hoping for. Where, what do you think of like where we stand right now? Is this like a real risk that we should be considering, or am, am I kind of overstating it? Like, is it more exciting to just build it and see where it goes?
0: Um, yeah. So I'm. I got to build and see where it goes. The reality is, with fine, I mean, there's there's like all all innovation and in finance boils down to two things incorporation of leverage and bundling and unbundling of risk. Mm-hmm. And the more assets and, and values held in cryptocurrencies, um, the more desire there are going to be, uh, for market participants to both add leverage into the system in various ways and to fit, find different forms of risk and bundle and unbundle that risk. Um, this will happen without a question. It, it, it like has to happen because that's the definition of free markets is that these, these kinds of things will happen. Um, the good thing about crypto is that because the underlying systems are are open and permissionless and auditable is that as as assets get rehypothecated between different parties, as leverage is introduced, we can track kind of global systemic sources of risk um, and mitigate them. And so, on a long enough time scale, I would expect the same kinds of things to happen on top of open blockchain systems as currently happen in kind of modern uh, finance world, um the primary difference will be is that the whole system will actually be open and auditable. Um, which will allow us to understand sources of risk far, far better than we could previously. Um, there's actually a quote from, I, I believe it's from the uh, head of the CFTC. He, this is probably about a year old now. Um, and in it, he's talking about he's talking about crypto and smart contracts specifically. And they said, yes, if we had uh, you know, distributed ledgers like Ethereum, we could have prevented the 2008 crisis because we could have understood how many forms of kind of net hidden leverage there were in the system. Um, When every company maintains its own private ledger and its own private balance sheet um, and there's all these interconnections between different parties, if one party goes down, it's just you you can't know how the contagion spread to all the other parties um, in the status quo. Um, In a blockchain-based kind of financial system, we we could understand that uh, and ensure that we don't have the kind of cataclysmic events like we did in 2008 um, with these systems. So I'm optimistic. I'm extremely optimistic in the future of, of open finance. Um, both in the Ethereum sense and in the kind of the free market Wall Street sense. Um, uh, where I think it will differ from kind of the status quo is that everything will be open and that you won't be able to create um, or it, it will be much, much, much harder to create the sources of systemic risk that we have seen in traditional business cycles.
1: I was going to say that was just about the most optimistic response that I've heard to that prompt and and it really genuinely did make me feel better which is a good thing. I thought it was well explained, you know. And then of course it's it's going to be up to us to balance this auditable system with, you know, allowing for privacy within that same system. Um, but it sounds like, you know, obviously we're working to get the technology there as well. And I, and I don't think either of us would argue against the value of a more open financial system, both in terms of participation, but in terms of preventing uh, systemic world crises. And, and hopefully we don't need to sustain one in order to, you know, build a world in which they're not as possible. Uh, but I have my doubts there as well. Um, in In the last portion of this podcast, I want to talk about something that you wrote that uh, that I thought was a really maybe it doesn't summarize your entire perspective, but it definitely seemed to be echoed in a lot of your writing. And I'm just going to read these couple sentences. and, And I think we can jump off from there. You wrote, given that all open source code can be copied without permission, achieving network effects as quickly as possible is the only thing that matters. And achieving network effects is mostly a function of Go to market strategy and execution. So first, let let's kind of dig into each of those. So for the first one, like why why is that you know the only thing that matters? You know, given given this ability to copy, and then afterwards, I I want to talk a bit about like what execution, good execution, looks like in your mind.
0: Yeah. So um, you know, all code running blockchains is open source, um, and so therefore, all open source code can be copied. Obviously, like if you're going to take something from one paradigm and try and move it into another paradigm, there are difficulties, and it's not literally copy paste. In fact, there rarely is copy paste. So I don't mean to trivialize kind of engineering realities. Um, it's but, easier to
1: copy paste a white paper. No, it, yeah. no references required.
0: Right. There's no, there's no dependencies in, in doing, um, doing that. But obviously, given a code base, there are natural dependencies, um, both in terms of code and logic as well as in terms of state if the system is already live. So I don't, I don't mean to trivialize the engineering realities. Uh, however, if, if someone, if a team comes up with a breakthrough, um, whether it's the zero knowledge proofs or consensus algorithms or whatever, and they publish all that open source, then every other team on the planet can and should um, copy it, right? Either literally with copy paste or by copying and modifying kind of accordingly. Um, and that will happen. Given the amount of money at stake for these systems, that will happen. And we are already seeing it happen. Um, for example, Tezos is basically borrowing all of this work that the Zcash team did with Sapling and incorporating it into Tezos. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of other kind of examples of, of this kind of a thing happening right now. Um, so given that that's the case, um, how do you have any notion of defensibility at all? Um, and the answer is really the only answer is network effects. Um, so I feel quite confident in the, kind of the first half of that. The second half of that is, the, you know, on how do you build network effects? Um, and the answer there basically is, in my view is go to market um, and execution. Uh, and, and so the idea there is that, you know, there's different sources of network effects. Like, for example, Vitalik wrote I remember um, kind of right around the time Ethereum launched, Vitalik wrote about the different sources of network effects and blockchains. Folks like myself, I think have also kind of articulated some of the different kinds of network effects, but by far the most important one is um, just simply the, the kind of I'll call it the currency value. Uh, people do not want to, to have to move in and out of currencies and speculate on them. The the higher the market cap, the, the more organic demand there is for a cryptocurrency. The mm-hmm. higher the market cap, the higher the market cap, the more liquidity. The more liquidity, the, typically the more stable the price. Um, the the more like the more liquidity that means it's on more exchanges, which means it's more accessible to more people, which means you have better tooling, right? And so there's just kind of all of these like natural things that come from basically more people using it. Um, right. And so that's kind of what I broadly mean by kind of go-to-market and execution. Um, and all of those forms and artifacts are, you know, intertwined.
1: Yeah, I was going to say they're definitely interrelated. Uh, and it almost sounds self-fulfilling when you describe it that way, you know, uh, when when you work out just exactly how this complex system feeds back into itself. So let's let's think about maybe some of the metrics for this, you know, how how would you measure Network effects. Like you can measure a static snapshot of you know how many people, let's say, are running nodes in a network, or or building smart contracts for a network, or even using the applications on the network. But what what do you think is like maybe the most important metric? And is it is it a growth rate? Is it like a tipping point that the network needs to reach? You know what do you think What do you think it is?
0: Um, I mean, if I was forced to pick only one generically across all assets, I would pick. Uh, either market cap or, or some sort of derivative of that, so something like a realized market cap. Mm-hmm. Um, in a very generic sense, I, I find market cap is a good aggregate proxy. Um, there are some exceptions. So, for example, something like Ethereum Classic, I think, it should be worth zero. It has market cap of $400 million, but, but for the most part, um, the higher the market cap, the more indication of utility there is mm-hmm. um, and stronger network effects. Um, again, how how you compare something like Ethereum to something like Bitcoin, though, is challenging because Bitcoin effectively is just digital gold. Um, whereas something like Ethereum, there's actual organic usage for, and, and like organic demand for applications. Right. Um, how, how you compare those two things, it, there's not a great kind of comparison. People look at things like daily active addresses and daily transaction counts and those kinds of things. Um, given the, uh, I'd say, complexity differences and the types of transactions, I find those types of comparisons to be not super useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as... Um, the kind of next generation smart contract platforms separate from Bitcoin in terms of throughput, usability, usage, et cetera, um, that the, those numbers are going to become further and further apart and it's going to become harder and harder to directly compare them. Uh, so I'm not super, I don't really love those kinds of metrics for, for generalized comparisons, right. um, the cap in my view, most accurate is a very rudimentary way to capture that those, delta differences, but again, highly subject to error.
1: Right. Just because of how it's challenging. Like, for example, if you're trying to compare Binance Coin and EOS and you're just going to look straight up at, you know, the market capitalization of these of these two crypto assets, you know, they may look very similar and they could not be more different and their growth prospects might even be very different. But, you know it's true I, I don't know how comparable these networks are or should be i you know my title is head of growth with enigma the only thing i care about is what happens next right are these things going to get bigger are more people going to use them like where does this stuff go and i think the challenge i have with using price or market cap as any kind of indication is it doesn't really tell me where things are going and i'm and i'm only hearing a little bit i'm not trying to put words in your mouth because i know you don't fully mean this but like i'm hearing you say like if we look at where things currently are, it is actually a signal as to where they could go. Just because these now have more visibility, or they have more uh, resources with which to attract developers, or something like that. So, if we're going to look at market capitalization as one way to measure the success or growth of a project, what do you what do you look at? You know, in your position, when you look at projects that are you know not as well known or not in like the upper echelon, like what are you what are you looking to see? What are the green shoots you'd be looking for, thinking that someday they might achieve that kind of success or notoriety?
0: Um, yeah, so I mean, it starts always on, a, on kind of a first principles basis from underlying technology um, and, and the problem they're solving, and, and then how their their tech solves that problem. Um, from there, the next most important thing is is team, and then the next most important thing after that is the actual market itself. What is the opportunity they're working on? Um, so those are kind of the three things we always look at in priority order um, whenever we uh, evaluate any new opportunity. Um, depending on what the market is, the problem and the solution in the team can can vary quite widely. Um, so the, the, you know, the interrelation of those variables is gets weird. Um, but definitely we are, as investors at, at Multicoin, uh, probably more biased towards understanding technology and investing on kind of a first principles basis um, from there.
1: Well, it sounds like that's how you stay ahead of trends, regardless, and that you've already identified a few in this conversation. You know, at least around you know, fiat on- onboarding and key management and so on. Uh, so I'll ask a, I guess, a related question as we start to wrap up. You know, since you've written about uh, this risk of just having code get copied or forked, and and how imperative it is to achieve network effects. You know, something that a bunch of people have spoken about with all these projects that are solving some of, you know, either the same problems or their aspects of similar problems. They think about like how mergers and acquisitions and things like that are going to look in this space. You know, you've got a lot of these smaller projects floating around. Maybe some of them are attacking serious issues. Maybe some of them aren't. Really tackling serious issues, but their platforms built on top of other protocols, and they're they have similar value propositions for the end user. What do you think that's going to look like? Like, I don't think we've seen a lot of you know M and A in the space, maybe because it's just so impossible to wrap your head around how it might even look. But do you think that's something that we're going to start seeing more of? And if so, you know, what might it look like?
0: Uh, yeah, so actually, I, I think I wrote about this in probably. Q4 2017, um, and I was generally quite skeptical of the idea of crypto m um, and specifically with regards to existing tokens that are floating out there. Um, the reason I'm skeptical of crypto m for kind of public tokens, or I should, teams affiliated with public tokens, is that um, if you acquire, the, if like teams, if teams merge, then like what do you do with the, to- the two types of tokens? Either you like have to inflate one group at the expense of the other. Um, or you just have to kind of tell one group, hey, devs are abandoning shop and are moving over. You know, hopefully you move over too and sell your old coins and buy the new coins. Um, either way, there's not really a clean way to do these kinds of, um, to these kinds of mergers. Um, the other kind of problem with the idea of, of kind of an acquisition in this space is in a crypto network, what exactly are, is the acquirer buying? Um, you can buy teams, you can buy intellectual property. Um, but in the case of a crypto network, right? What you're really quote unquote, I mean, the only asset of the network is the distribution of the of the people who who own the tokens and the, and the value of the tokens. The software is open source. You can argue there's some value in kind of the team underlying it, but if you buy the team and then don't like like bring the network over with it, that kind of destroys most of the value. And so um, I'm I'm extremely the idea of like one person buying up 100% of all of the Zcash tokens or 100% of all of the Graph tokens. To me, it just seems stupid um, because by one person buying them all up, you kind of defeat the whole purpose of the system. So uh, it's not clear to me what mergers and acquisitions mean for teams that have issued public tokens. I'm quite skeptical that those will be a thing. Um, Now for companies like Coinbase and other teams just building infrastructure in the space that have not issued kind of a public um, utility token of sorts or a public layer one chain, there's all kinds of, I'd say, traditional MA opportunities for them. But for teams that are doing public tokens, I'm skeptical.
1: I only have one question to follow that, which is like, what would happen if somebody tried to buy Binance? Maybe, maybe this is just like, so I'm not a venture capitalist in this space, right? And and I'm not a, an active investor. I'm building a project. So I really do want to genuinely understand, like, if somebody wanted to buy Binance tomorrow, like say Facebook tried to do it, well, how, how would that even happen? Like, what would they be acquiring? What What would it look like?
0: Yeah, in the case of Binance, I, I honestly don't even know. Um, I think it would be pretty difficult. I'm I'm quite skeptical anyone would acquire Binance in the foreseeable future, given the amount of I'd say um just risk around the company, um and, and the kind of liabilities it would create for the acquirer. Mm-hmm. Um, but like if you were buying Binance, right, you'd be buying a centralized exchange business that prints money, uh, is quite profitable, and then you you'd be buying about forty percent of all BNB, um, and the other sixty percent of the BNB would continue to float. Um, so that's what you'd be buying. How would the market respond to that e- is unclear to me. Um, there's a real risk that in the process of the acquisition that the price of b and could skyrocket or collapse, which ad- just introduces a tremendous amount of risk into that kind of equation. So um, overall, I-, I just I can tell you, I mean, Binance doesn't need to worry about being acquired. Like it's very profitable. I don't think given the risks around the company, anyone really would acquire it. Um, and the fact that they have you know, the Singaporean um, sovereign wealth fund is an investor in Binance. Um, they're not really worried about like, like they have regulatory you know, they have, um, uh, good relationships with kind of their local governments. So they're in a, they're in good standing there. Um, so overall, just, there's no need for them to be acquired. How you do it logistically also is very messy and unclear to me.
1: Yeah. I guess it's more likely they'll end up buying Facebook in the long run. Right. Oh, well, <laughs> I, then I have just, uh, my oh, last question. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. If you have a, if, if you have a really, Interesting contribution there. I do want to hear it. I, I doubt that's going to happen, but um, I I do have one final question for you, which is that you you know you've described yourself as as a prolific reader and obviously writer in this space and investor and everything else. Probably a lot of people listening are also avid readers themselves, trying to educate them about this space, but they you know they're just getting started, or you know obviously every day. You know there's probably a thousand blog posts written and so many lines of code put out there. how do you how do you wrap your head around it? if if somebody listening, you know if you were trying to guide them into focusing their attention so that they were learning as much as they could in in the limited hours that they have in the day, are there just like a few resources that you would point them to or or types of research that you would encourage them to do that you think are most impactful?
0: Yeah. so the resources I typically recommend to people um if you're, you know, pretty far down the rabbit hole and and want to keep going further. Um, So I curate a a Twitter list. Um, uh, If you go to my Twitter and just go to lists, um, I curate one called Crypto VIP. Uh, It's got about 60 people on it or so that I I think are are generally quite thoughtful. Um, I would also follow Tony Sheng's blog. Um, I would follow um, Token Economy. Um, I would follow Masari. Their daily newsletter is quite good. Um, Try to now resources. you're naming
1: all my guests, so I, I, I feel great. <laughs>
0: um, I, it's a pretty standard repertoire of, of, I'd say, curation resources in the space. Um, those, oh, and then the other one is uh, Nathaniel Whittemore. Um, mm. He does something called Long Read Sundays, which is excellent. I'd say if you just follow those alone, that's pretty solid coverage.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Those are all incredible resources. I, I enjoy also following things like, you know, Weak in Ethereum if you care about Ethereum or, or the Ethub guys or things like that. There's, there's just so much going on. I think uh, one other thing I would recommend is just finding, you know, people you trust in this space, b- building your own sub-communities, you know, joining groups where it's it's people you trust who are doing just as much research as you. I, I learn the most from uh, people who are just as voracious, on the reading and research side is me but just like have a totally different focus you know for me that's like I like talking to token engineers because I do know token engineering um, but I know a little bit more about you know privacy scalability and even liquidity uh, than they do so it's nice to build those uh, I guess mastermind communities uh, I never call it that but I'm guessing that's what they would be called uh, well, thank you, Kyle. I mean, I really appreciate you taking all this time. I think you've shared some really good resources and, and obviously you're very thoughtful about this stuff. Since you've managed to point people to a bunch of resources that aren't you, I'm going to allow you to close by pointing people to where they can read more of your work specifically uh, or learn more about Multicoin or anything else.
0: Yeah, so um, most of the stuff that I write ends up on the Multicoin blog. So if you just go to our, our blog, is our website. Our website is multicoin.capital. Um, it is not .com, just .capital, um, and I publish all of our stuff there. Uh, and then, if you want to follow me personally, I'm a, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is just my name, at Kyle Samani, K-Y-L-E-S-A-M-A-N-I, um, and I'm um, generally a rather colorful character on Twitter.
1: <laughs> yes, I enjoy it, and I, if you're not on your own VIP list, you should be. Uh, I encourage everybody to check all that out. I'm going to put the links in the podcast description uh, from Kyle's Twitter to his Twitter list, to everything else that was mentioned, and maybe some of those old blog posts as well, which I think, you know, even for things that were written a year and a half ago when it was a very different time, I think they're just as relevant today. So thank you for coming on and uh, sharing your updated expertise, and I look forward to hearing more about where you guys are going in the near future. You teased a few things, and I uh, I can't wait to see what happens
0: next. Awesome tour. Thank you so much for having me on. This was the last.